Random Knowledge, Episode 27, Warren G. Harding Warren Gamaliel Harding was the 29th President of the United States, serving from 1921 until his death in 1923. A member of the Republican Party, he was one of the most popular sitting U.S. presidents. After his death, a number of scandals were exposed, including Teapot Dome, as well as an extramarital affair with Nan Britton, which diminished his reputation. Harding lived in rural Ohio all his life, except when political service took him elsewhere. As a young man, he bought the Marion Star and built it into a successful newspaper. Harding served in the Ohio State Senate from 1900 to 1904, and was lieutenant governor for two years. He was defeated for governor in 1910, but was elected to the United States Senate in 1914, the state's first direct election for that office. Harding ran for the Republican nomination for president in 1920, but was considered a long shot before the convention. When the leading candidates could not garner a majority, and the convention deadlocked, support for Harding increased, and he was nominated on the 10th ballot. He conducted a front porch campaign, remaining mostly in Marion, and allowed the people to come to him. He promised a return to normalcy of the pre-World War I period, and won in a landslide over Democrat James M. Cox, to become the first sitting senator elected president. Harding appointed a number of respected figures to his cabinet, including Andrew Mellon at Treasury, Herbert Hoover at Commerce, and Charles Evans Hughes at the State Department. A major foreign policy achievement came with the Washington Naval Conference of 1921-1922, in which the world's major naval powers agreed on a naval limitations program that lasted a decade. Harding released political prisoners who had been arrested for their opposition to World War I. Harding's interior secretary, Albert B. Fall, and his attorney general, Harry Daugherty, were each later tried for corruption in office. Fall was convicted though Daugherty was not. These and other scandals greatly damaged Harding's posthumous reputation, he is generally regarded as one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Harding died of a heart attack in San Francisco while on a Western tour, and was succeeded by Vice President Calvin Coolidge. Early Life and Career Childhood and Education Warren Harding was born on November 2, 1865, in Blooming Grove, Ohio. Nicknamed, Winnie, as a small child, he was the eldest of eight children born to George Tryon Harding and Phoebe Elizabeth Harding. Phoebe was a state-licensed midwife. Tryon farmed and taught school near Mount Gilead. Through apprenticeship and a year of medical school, Tryon became a doctor and started a small practice. Some of Harding's maternal ancestors were Dutch, including the wealthy Van Kirk family. Harding also had ancestors from England, Wales and Scotland. It was rumored by a political opponent in Blooming Grove that one of Harding's great-grandmothers was African-American. His great-great-grandfather Amos Harding claimed that a thief, who had been caught in the act by the family, started the rumor in an attempt at extortion or revenge. In 2015, genetic testing of Harding's descendants determined, with more than a 95% chance of accuracy, that he lacked sub-Saharan African forebears within four generations. In 1870, the Harding family, who were abolitionists, moved to Caledonia, where Tryon acquired the Argus, a local weekly newspaper. At the Argus, Harding, from the age of 11, learned the basics of the newspaper business. In late 1879, at the age of 14, Harding enrolled at his father's alma mater, Ohio Central College in Iberia, where he proved an adept student. He and a friend put out a small newspaper, the Iberia Spectator, during their final year at Ohio Central, intended to appeal to both the college and the town. 
During his final year, the Harding family moved to Marion, about six miles from Caledonia, where he joined them upon graduation in 1882. Editor. In Harding's youth, the majority of the population still lived on farms and in small towns. He spent much of his life in Marion, a small city in rural central Ohio, and became closely associated with it. When Harding rose to high office, he spoke of his love of Marion and its way of life, telling of the many young Marionites who had left and enjoyed success elsewhere, while suggesting that the man, once the pride of the school, who had remained behind and become a janitor, was the happiest one of the lot. Upon graduating, Harding had stints as a teacher and as an insurance man, and made a brief attempt at studying law. He then raised $300 in partnership with others to purchase a failing newspaper, the Marion Star, the weakest of the city's three papers, and its only daily. The 18-year-old Harding used the railroad pass that came with the paper to attend the 1884 Republican National Convention, where he hobnobbed with better-known journalists and supported the presidential nominee, former Secretary of State James G. Blaine. Harding returned from Chicago to find that the paper had been reclaimed by the sheriff for outstanding debts. During the election campaign, Harding worked for the Marion Democratic Mirror and was annoyed at having to praise the Democratic presidential nominee, New York Governor Grover Cleveland, who won the election. Afterward, with the financial aid of his father, the budding newspaperman redeemed the paper. Through the late 1880s, Harding built the star. Although the city of Marion tended to vote Republican, Marion County was Democratic. Harding therefore adopted a tempered editorial stance, declaring the Daily Star nonpartisan and circulating a weekly edition that was moderate Republican. This policy attracted advertisers and put the town's Republican weekly out of business. According to his biographer, Andrew Sinclair, the success of Harding with the Star was certainly in the model of Horatio Alger. He started with nothing, and through working, stalling, bluffing, withholding payments, borrowing back wages, boasting, and manipulating, he turned a dying rag into a powerful small-town newspaper. Much of his success had to do with his good looks, affability, enthusiasm, and persistence, but he was also lucky. As Machiavelli once pointed out, cleverness will take a man far, but he cannot do without good fortune. The population of Marion grew from 4,000 in 1880 to twice that in 1890, increasing to 12,000 by 1900. This growth helped the star, and Harding did his best to promote the city, purchasing stock in many local enterprises. Although a few of these turned out badly, he was a successful investor, with an estate of $850,000 in 1923. According to biographer John Dean, Harding's civic influence was that of an activist who used his editorial page to effectively keep his nose, and a prodding voice, in all the town's public business. He became an ardent supporter of Republican Governor Joseph B. Foraker. He is the only U.S. president to have had full-time journalism experience. Marriage Harding first came to know Florence Kling as the daughter of Amos Kling, a local banker and developer. He was a man accustomed to getting his way, but Harding attacked him relentlessly in the paper. Amos involved Florence in all his affairs, taking her to work from the time she could walk. As hard-headed as her father, Florence Kling came into conflict with her father after returning from music college. She eloped with Pete DeWolf, and returned to Marion without DeWolf, but with an infant, Marshall, Amos agreed to raise the boy, but would not support Florence, who made a living as a piano teacher. One of her students was Harding's sister Charity. By 1886, Florence Kling had obtained a divorce, and she and Harding were courting. A truce between the Klings was snuffed out by the budding match. Amos Kling believed that the Hardings had African-American blood, 
and was also offended by Harding's editorials. He started to spread rumors of Harding's supposed black heritage, and encouraged local businessmen to boycott Harding's business interests. When Harding found out what Kling was doing, according to Dean, Harding warned him that he would beat the tar out of the little man if he didn't cease. The Hardings were married on July 8, 1891, at their new home on Mount Vernon Avenue in Marion, which they had designed together in the Queen Anne style. The marriage produced no children. Harding affectionately called his wife, the Duchess, for a character in a serial from the New York Sun who kept a close eye on the Duke and their money. Florence Harding became deeply involved in her husband's career, both at the Star and after he entered politics. Exhibiting her father's determination and business sense, she helped turn the Star into a profitable enterprise through her tight management of the paper's circulation department. She has been credited with helping Harding achieve more than he might have alone. Some have suggested that she pushed him all the way to the White House. Start in politics. Soon after purchasing the Star, Harding turned his attention to politics, supporting Joseph B. Foraker in his first successful bid for governor in 1885. Foraker was part of the war generation that challenged older Ohio Republicans, such as Senator John Sherman, for control of state politics. Harding, always a party loyalist, supported Foraker in the complex internecine warfare that was Ohio Republican politics. Harding was willing to tolerate Democrats as necessary to a two-party system, but had only contempt for those who bolted the Republican Party to join third-party movements. He was a delegate to the Republican State Convention in 1888, at the age of 22, representing Marion County, and was most often elected a delegate until becoming president. Harding's work as an editor took a toll on his health. From age 23 to 35, he required five admissions to the Battle Creek Sanatorium for reasons Sinclair described as fatigue, overstrain, and nervous illnesses. Dean ties these visits to early occurrences of the heart ailment that killed Harding at age 57. During one such absence from Marion, in 1894, the star's business manager quit, and Florence Harding took his place. She became her husband's top assistant at the star on the business side, maintaining her role until the Hardings moved to Washington in 1915. Her competence allowed Harding to travel to make speeches, his use of the free railroad pass increased greatly after his marriage. Florence Harding practiced strict economy and wrote of Harding, he does well when he listens to me and poorly when he does not. In 1892, Harding traveled to Washington where he met Democratic Nebraska Congressman William Jennings Bryan, and listened to the boy orator of the Platte speak on the floor of the House of Representatives. Harding traveled to Chicago's Columbian Exposition in 1893. Both visits were without Florence. Democrats generally won Marion County's offices in 1895, and though Harding lost the election for county auditor, he did better than expected. The following year, Harding was one of many orators who traveled across Ohio in support of the campaign of the Republican presidential candidate William McKinley, that state's former governor. According to Dean, while working for McKinley over Harding's sex life, the allegations of Harding's other known mistress, Nan Britton, long remained uncertain. In 1927, Britton, also a Marionite, published the president's daughter, alleging that her child Elizabeth Ann Blessing had been fathered by Harding. The book, which was dedicated to all unwedded mothers, and their innocent children whose fathers are usually not known to the world, was sold, like pornography, door to door, wrapped in brown paper. The late president's reputation had deteriorated since his death in 1923, and many believed Britain. The public was tantalized by salacious details such as Britain's claim that the two had sex in a closet near the Oval Office, with Secret Service agents posted to ward off intruders. 
Although part of the public believed her, a jury found against her when she alleged she was libeled by a rebuttal of her book. According to Harding family lore, the late president was infertile and could not have fathered a child, having suffered from mumps in childhood. Britain maintained that Harding had provided child support of $500 per month for the daughter he never met, but she had destroyed romantic correspondence from him at his request. Harding's biographers, writing while Britain's allegations remained uncertain, differed on their truth. Russell believed them unquestioningly while Dean, having reviewed Britain's papers at UCLA, regarded them as unproven. In 2015, DNA tests performed by Ancestry.com were used by members of the Harding and Blessing families, which confirmed that Harding was Elizabeth's father. Sinclair suggested that a harsher standard was applied to Harding compared with Grover Cleveland, who was elected president in 1884, although it was known he had a mistress and may have fathered a son out of wedlock. Historical view Upon his death, Harding was deeply mourned, he was called a man of peace in many European newspapers. American journalists praised him lavishly, with some describing him as having given his life for his country. His associates were stunned by his demise. Daugherty wrote, I can hardly write about it or allow myself to think about it yet. Hughes stated, I cannot realize that our beloved chief is no longer with us. Hagiographic accounts of Harding's life quickly followed his death, such as Joe Mitchell Chappell's life and times of Warren G. Harding, our after-war president. By then, the scandals were breaking, and the Harding administration soon became a byword for corruption in the view of the public. Works written in the late 1920s helped shape Harding's dubious historical reputation. Masks in a Pageant, by William Allen White, mocked and dismissed Harding, as did Samuel Hopkins Adams' fictionalized account of the Harding administration, Revelry. These books depicted Harding's time in office as one of great presidential weakness. The publication of Nan Britton's best-selling book disclosing they had had an affair also lowered the late president in public esteem. President Coolidge, wishing to distance himself from his predecessor, refused to dedicate the Harding tomb. Hoover, Coolidge's successor, was similarly reluctant, but with Coolidge in attendance, presided over the dedication in 1931. By that time, with the Great Depression in full swing, Hoover was nearly as discredited as Harding. Adams continued to shape the negative view of Harding with several non-fiction works in the 1930s, culminating with The Incredible Era, the life and times of Warren G. Harding in which he called his subject, an amiable, well-meaning third-rate Mr. Babbitt, with the equipment of a small-town semi-educated journalist. It could not work. It did not work. Dean views the works of White and Adams, remarkably unbalanced and unfair accounts, exaggerating the negative, assigning responsibility to Harding for all wrongs, and denying him credit for anything done right. Today there is considerable evidence refuting their portrayals of Harding. Yet the myth has persisted. The opening of Harding's papers for research in 1964 sparked a small spate of biographies, of which the most controversial was Russell's The Shadow of Blooming Grove which concluded that the rumors of black ancestry deeply affected Harding in his formative years, causing both Harding's conservatism and his desire to get along with everyone. Coffey faults Russell's methods and deems the biography largely critical, though not entirely unsympathetic. Murray's The Harding Era took a more positive view of the president and put him in the context of his times. Trani and Wilson faulted Murray for a tendency to go overboard in trying to connect Harding with the successful policies of his cabinet officers, and for asserting, without sufficient evidence, that a new, more assertive Harding had emerged by 1923. 
Later decades saw revisionist books published on Harding. Robert Farrell's The Strange Deaths of President Harding, according to Coffey, spends almost the entire work challenging every story about Harding and concludes that almost everything that is read and taught about his subject is wrong. In 2004, John Dean, noted for his involvement in another presidential scandal, Watergate, wrote the Harding volume in The American Presidents, series of short biographies, edited by Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. Coffey considered that book the most revisionist to date, and faults Dean for glossing over some unfavorable episodes in Harding's life, like his silence during the 1914 Senate campaign, when his opponent Hogan was being attacked for his faith. Harding has traditionally been ranked as one of the worst presidents. In a 1948 poll conducted by Harvard University, historian Arthur M. Schlesinger Sr. conducted a survey of scholars' opinions of the presidents, ranking Harding last among the 29 presidents considered. He has also been last in many other polls since, which Farrell attributes to scholars reading little but sensational accounts of Harding. Murray argued that Harding deserves more credit than historians have given. He was certainly the equal of a Franklin Pierce, an Andrew Johnson, a Benjamin Harrison, or even a Calvin Coolidge. In concrete accomplishments, his administration was superior to a sizable portion of those in the nation's history. Coffey believes the academic lack of interest in Harding has cost him his reputation, as scholars still rank Harding as nearly dead last among presidents. Trani faults Harding's own lack of depth and decisiveness as bringing about his tarnished legacy. Still, some authors and historians continue to call for a re-evaluation of the Harding presidency. In The Spoils of War, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith place Harding first in a combined ranking of fewest wartime deaths and highest annual per capita income growth during each president's time in office. Murray argued that Harding sowed the seeds for his administration's poor standing. In the American system, there is no such thing as an innocent bystander in the White House. If Harding can rightly claim the achievements of a Hughes in state or a Hoover in commerce, he must also shoulder responsibility for a Daugherty in justice and a fall in interior. Especially must he bear the onus of his lack of punitive action against such men as Forbes and Smith. By his inaction, he forfeited whatever chance he had to maintain the integrity of his position and salvage a favorable image for himself and his administration. As it was, the subsequent popular and scholarly negative verdict was inevitable, if not wholly deserved. Stay tuned.